This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to Shattered Lives. I'm Kieran Bradley. You're very welcome to part two of our special episode on the story of the Hutch Kinnahan feud. With the Special Criminal Court in recess until the 2nd of December, we wanted to bring you the story of what brought us to this point. I'll be speaking to Michael O'Toole, crime correspondent from the Irish Daily Star, about his experiences covering the feud since its beginning. In yesterday's episode, we covered the origins of the gang violence and the escalation after the Regency, as well as the personalities involved. Today, we look deeper into the guards' response, what the violence has done to Dublin's inner city, and what the future holds for the gangs and for the younger generation who have been pulled into their orbit. So Mick, when we left things yesterday, we were discussing the one-sided nature of the killings up to a certain point in 2018. And at that point, it really looked as if the Kinnans had their boot on the throat of the Hutch crime family. So it sort of begs the question, why did they stop? Yeah, I think the, the, the guards stopped them. Um, there's no doubt, and this has been said, that the, the Regency Airport hotel attack was a really bad day for the Garda Shiakana. I mean, they, they, we've spoken about this, the international headlines were terrible. You know, men with Kalashnikovs and dressed up as Gardaí and around the world. It, it really did go around the world. So, there were nothing, you know, it was, it was a bad day. But since then, the guards have had a lot of good days. And they've had a lot of good days principally against the Kinnahan cartel. And I always remember, so the tapes that we listened to in the court uh, between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall, according to the state, were uh, on the 7th of March. On the 9th of March, we know that the Kalashnikovs style rifles used in the Regency were seized by the Special Detective Unit in Slain in County Kildare. But also that day, it was the start of the, really the start of the fight back because by the Garda, because the Criminal Assets Bureau mounted a series of raids, say against people connected to the Burn Organised Crime Gang, which is a key part of the Kenyan cartel. And it was really was, I always look back and think that was the start of the fight back because they, you know, they seized millions of euro worth of, of properties, you know, did the whole big shebang, went after them big time. And subsequent to that, as part of that, that investigation, People connected to the burn crime gang and the Kenyans lost their property. You know, they they forfeited cash. So that, that that essentially was the start of it. And what I put that down to was the government, as I said, the government really had to wake up and they give the guards five million quid extra for overtime within a couple of days, maybe a week or two mm. of the regency. And that went to what... I, I'm, I spoke with the Garda National Drugs Unit in 2010. That was replaced by the Garda Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, which was the merging of the Organised Crime Unit uh, and the Garda National Drugs Unit. So came Doc B. And, you know, with that extra money, 
it went into resources, it went into extra overtime, it went into extra bodies on the ground. And really, it just, I thought that was the, the turning of the tide. And since then, it's been an almost, like a tidal wave of Garda successes. I can remember talking to a, a man called John O'Driscoll, who's the former assistant guard, guard assistant commission in charge of Dogby and serious crime. And, and this was maybe 2020, maybe 2021. He told my, me that since the Regency, the guards have foiled 77 hits. Now, wow. maybe all but four of them have been connected to the Kenneth Hutch feud. And I can tell you, of all the ones, that, uh, of all the, the murders foiled in relation to the Kenneth Hutch feud, the vast majority, in fact, probably all of them have been Kenan hits that have been foiled. So the Kenans were out there. The last murder uh, attributed to the feud was in January 2018, but there have been plenty of attempts before and after that. So the guards got out there. They, you know, they, they have, they, I'm not saying they got their act together because, it, you know, they just, they got more money, they got more resources, they got more overtime and they were able to, you know, really dig down and deep and there were technological advances, you know, evidence gathering, phone recordings, all that mm. sort of stuff, even bugs and everything. And it just became more and more successful and the Kenahans were getting more and more degraded. As, though, as well as those 77 foiled hits, we know that there are probably around 70 Kenahan connected criminals who are in prison. So the, basically the guards started locking up criminal gangsters or Kenahan gangsters. You know, say somebody like Freddie Thompson who was jailed for a July 2016 murder of a man called Dahi Douglas as part of the feud. He, you know, was brought in by the Kenahans to effectively run the feud in 2015. Because he had experience of running his own feud in, in Crumlin. He was involved in the, the cocaine wars, we used to call it. There were a, a feud in Crumlin during the, in the early noughties. 15 people were murdered. His gang murdered most of them. He was behind all these murders. So the Kenahans brought in him or were using him. So he had expertise in, in essentially how to kill people. He's locked up. People like Liam Brannigan, one of the main Kenan operatives, operators in Dublin is locked up. man called Declan Brady, Kenan's, we used to call him the chief executive, he was Mr. Nobody because he had such a low profile, but he was described to us as the chief executive of the gang in Dublin. He's locked up, he got 10 years for weapons offences. So they started, you know, harassing the Kenan's, getting their better intelligence, getting cooperation from various police forces, using electrical, you know, surveillance and, you know, phone technology, all that sort of stuff. And they just focused in on the Kennings and started to, to, to degrade them. So essentially, by January 2018, when the last murder of a man, as this uh, Buddha, James, James Buddha Molyneux carried out, it was, it was carried out, you know, the Kennings didn't really have that many gunmen left. Some of them are, de- are are abroad. Some of them are a lot are in prison. Some are in broad abroad because there's evidence against them, and they can't come back to Ireland, or else they'll be dealt. So, really, you know, the, the gang has been de- degraded, and it took two years of really hard slog by the guards to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I I, I actually know a few people who are in the guards uh, in Dublin, and it, it it has dominated their professional life for for quite a long time. It, it's quite interesting as well, just drawing on that kind of personal experience in that, um, you know, it, the, the Regency literally happened in the middle of a, a general election campaign in 2016 as well. And obviously we've come to remember that through the audio recordings uh, uh, from Dowdle and Hutch. Um, but you, you do, you do, in your kind of more cynical moments, think that maybe if you are at the top brass of the Angada Shikana, think that maybe something of this magnitude is a, is a, is a way to reiterate the importance of the Garda's uh, general operational duties every day and, and, and to literally say, listen, we need the money to do this job. So, I mean, are you, I'd be interested to get your kind of sense of when you speak to 
cards obviously you, you will do in the course of your job all the time i guess what is their sort of professional opinion of this i mean is it is it something they see as a career case for example they how can i say this they enjoy locking up criminals so you know the most interaction the interaction that most people would have with guards would be at checkpoints if they're you know they're checking your tax discs or insurance but every guard it's part of, we have a unitary police force. So, you know, say in England, there's MI5, which deals with state security. And then there's maybe, I don't know, maybe 25 different county police forces and all that sort of stuff. And you have the county terrorism police, all that sort of stuff. There's one police force in Ireland. So the person that stops you on Gardiner Street and asks about your, uh, you know, your tax and insurance is also the same person who can go and collate, you know, Daniel Kennehan walking down the street with with one of his, one of his men. And that goes into the central intelligence. So, you know, Guards, they're all part of an intelligence gathering police force and they're a part of a, a law enforcement police force. But look, they 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 really enjoy going after criminals. It's there it's I think an awful lot of them it's why they joined the Garda Shikana. But what they did say to me was, listen, and this these would be people who would be at the forefront of fighting organized crime like the Kennans. Said, if you guys if we get the money, we will go after them and we will degrade them. And to be fair to them, when they did get the money, they did go after them. And they did degrade them. So it's, for me, it's, you know, policing, it's quite simple. If the guards have the resources, uh, they will do the job. But, I mean, guards, I'm not being cynical, guards would always say, ah, the job's goosed. And they want to use a stronger language than that. But <laughs> once there, there is, you know, once they, ha- once they have the proper, they say once they have the proper funding and the proper resources, they can go after them. And, and there are very few gangs who are immune to that. And I think, to be fair, that's probably been borne out. It was really only when this state went, okay, the Kenyans are a major threat to us. And the resources went to the guards that the the worm turned. Because and I mean, I, I, let, let's be let's be honest about this. You know, look, guards will contextualize the regency. It was a very bad day, and they will say, "Look, that was in the middle of austerity. Yeah, fewer guards than ever before back then. Lots of resignations and retirements of really experienced people. And you know, and there was just." You know, austerity was a terrible time for everybody, and it was really bad for the guards because they were losing so many people and everything. Once the, and so you know, once the money came along, they were able to go after them. And I, I think, to be fair, that's a good argument. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the reality is this is all political, whether we like it or not. In in one sense, um, I, I'd like to come on to your own experiences just in, in a moment, obviously, and your kind of recollections in, in, in of what's happened. But just I. It, it actually came to pass that last night I was speaking to somebody who uh, is working with young people uh, in the inner city. And, you know, we were talking about the pod and the like, and uh, he just offered his kind of opinion on it, which was that he sees in Crumlin in one area and other areas of the, the south inner city, young lads getting pulled into working for the Kinhens, frankly. Uh, and, you know, people who are very talented sports people falling out and, you know, roaming states doing, and earning good money. You know, if you're a kid, like this is good money and it's very tempting to act the hard man and all this, all that goes with it. And this might not be a question that you can answer because obviously, you know, you have your particular beat. But what is your general sense of the impact that this feud has had on Dublin as a city? Um, guards are worried that it's very, very concentrated. Look, you know, it is largely north central Dublin. And guards are very, very worried mm. that there's going to be a sort of transgenerational aspect of this. There could be young kids growing up today going, he killed my dad or he killed my brother or he killed my friend or, you know, whatever. So, you know, there, there's a level of worry there because 
it's not as if it's just to give an example it's not as if it's all the heads in Crumlin where the the, the burn crime gang is was going south north side crossing over the lefty and uh, was attacking people in north central Dublin what was happening was they were using people in the community in the north central community to be to go after other people in the north central community and very often they lived in the same street or they lived in you know nearby and you know the underworld people know and you know I lost number the count of, of times say there'd been a shooting and you know, not guards, but sometimes guards, members of the community that we would talk to go, oh yeah, we know who did that, that's your man. And I go, I thought he was on the, on the, the hutch side, yeah, I know he's been bought over. So, I'm not, it, 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 I don't want to say it's like a civil war, but there was a certain aspect to it of betrayal because people knew each other and people worked with each other and, you know, they were friends, they, oh, they went to school and everything. So, there are deep scars here. Now, uh, We've been very lucky because of the guard actions and because Kenneth has left Ireland and everything that has happened. There hasn't been a murder since tw- uh, January 2018. But there have been plenty of efforts and there have been plenty of attempts. Like, I mean, I, even off the top of my head, I can think of people who were done for an attempt to murder Patsy Hutch. And yeah. there were three fel- lads done. And, you know, they weren't from Cumberland. They were from Cabra and sent, I think one was from Febsborough. You know what I mean? So it's that general area. So it's it's really concentrated in that area. And the worry would be that you know, those divisions and tensions will continue down the generations. So I will say one other thing, Kieran, and I always say this, look, you know, I'm at the sharp end and guards are at the sharp end of, 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 of the, the crime, but very often when the guards are involved and very often when there is criminality, it's, you know, without getting totally, you know, uh, pink, or shall we say, it's a failure in society. You know, it's not... You know, it's it, that's the the culmination of so many different other things. What, what can young kids do? How can young kids be taken out of poverty if they see nineteen year old fellas driving BMW jeeps and having all those big expensive watches? If there's nothing for them in society, they will be sucked into this. So it's you know when the guards are involved, society has failed. I really do. it's too late when the guards are involved. So it's about prevention and trying to stop young fellas getting involved. But you know they see money and if they don't have any hopes themselves you can understand why young fellas do get involved or are drawn into it. Oh, absolutely. And I think actually this was why it was so jarring speaking to this guy last night in the sense that he was, a, you know, someone who had really got through to these young lads as a, as a you know, a football coach and, you know, he was talking to them on their level. He was getting them to do something they really enjoyed. And he was one of these kind of almost um, uh, air, air valves that kind of you know releases the pressure on some people who are heading down that road and I think that was why his he was particularly um, sort of disappointed by it but anyway we'll, we'll move on slightly but just on, on that sort of transgenerational point though um, and actually to bring in the Garda response as well this is increasingly a feud that's uh, moved to social media um, we've had reports in the Star and, and various other uh, newspapers under a banner that this is increasingly going on on TikTok and uh, Snapchat and various others. And, I'm, you know, I'm not going to sound like some horribly out of touch uh, Generation X lad here. But it, th- this must pose a particular problem for the guards in terms of trying to keep a tab on intelligence and also just try and prevent stuff from happening before it escalates and gets out of hand. No, I, I think it's probably a, a boon to the Guardi that there has been so much social media about this because it's sources of information. It's, you know, mm. OSINT, they call it open source inf- intelligence. So they can see who's tweeting what. Or it, it, I, I do think that there was a heavy element of Twitter, especially in the early days. You know, 
and you know from a journalistic perspective it, it was hectic but the amount of information we got via Twitter I mean I'm talking about people giving us information not publicly but mm. privately it was a great way for people to, to contact us and I'll, I'll just give you a, a perfect example shortly after the Regency I was in my office one day and somebody somebody contacted me and said listen you guys don't know this but because nobody really knew just remember we spoke about the attempt on Daniel Kinnan's life in November he said there was a guy ki- called Darren Kearns who was killed in around New Year's Day 2016 in Dublin just the same time as they tried to kill Jerry Hutch in Spain you guys don't know this but he was killed and Dahi Douglas who we know was killed in July he survived a hit a couple of it was I think it was late it was November round, round shortly after the, the the red cow he survived a shooting in Cabra he was out walking his dog and he was shot and this uh, contact said, or he became a contact or they became a contact you guys don't know this but those two men were shot because they tried to kill Daniel Kennan at the Red Cow Hotel in Dublin in wow. November right and I went yeah 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 and I was I thought it was complete nonsense I made one call right and I, I asked somebody and they said yeah about that is very very tight and it's been investigated as we speak and that was sensational because we were the first people to break the whole Darren Kearns thing uh, murder being connected to the feud and now everybody accepts it and it came from that one person contacting us so that person contacted me via social media and became a very important contact but it just goes to show you how you know in times of a crisis like that there was a flood of information and a flood of people coming to us now look you know there is this disinformation but you know social media has been great for me because people, it's a great way for, you know, guards and criminals to contact me and to contact other journalists. They feel, you know, with anonymity in certain cases, they feel safer about being talked to or that, you know, that there are ways that they're, without getting into too much, that they can talk to me in ways that can't be, you know, traced by the guards. So they have that level of security. So it's been a great boon for us, the technology there. But look, there's no doubt about it. Social media played a really, really important role. We know that. If if the, if you think back, there was when Daniel Kenyon tried to reinvent himself. One of the six times he tried to reinvent himself as Mister Fix It for boxing, there was this real social media campaign. You know, I think there was hashtag Regency cover up and everything, and we were getting all these abusive tweets and stuff from all these people in Scotland. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. I was going, yeah, why, yeah, yeah. why are all these Scottish people suddenly trying to mansplain Irish crime to me? You know, because it was like, why have you not done this, Michael? And you know, it, now, that, that's fine. Like it's no problem. But it, but it was clearly concerted, and there was clearly a concerted campaign. Look, there was a concerted campaign by Kenan and his allies, and there was definitely a campaign by people anti Kenan or pro Hutch crime gang, whatever you want to call it. And there was this battle going on, uh, you know, in the internet. You know, we were part of it because we were we were getting stories. So you know, I would never turn down a story as long as it's true. So my attitude when somebody tells me something on Twitter or DM or whatever, no problem. I'm going to check it out, and if it's true, I'll run it, and if it's not, I'll never talk to you again. Because some people do try to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes. But we go and check these things, so that's grand. But it was really interesting just to watch the Twitter war because for two or three years it was really intense. They were, you know, they were really really going for it, and there were various personalities who were. I mean, look, you know, Daniel Kennan was on Twitter. We know he was on on Twitter and he had a, he had an account that he didn't know I knew about, but I knew about, and various other people were on Twitter. So it was really, really interesting watching that. So it was sort of like the war was going on in Dublin and the war was going on in the, the Twitter sphere and, you know, other ones as well. So it was really interesting. Yeah, there were certainly a few facets to it. I was working in sports media uh, for, uh, well, another outlet uh, at that time. And actually it felt like, 
uh, there was we were one arm of the culture war that was going on around this kind of fake news media and hashtag scum media and stuff. And it was literally, I, I, I couldn't have been happier when the uh, the move against the Kinnan hats happened in the sense that we were right all along. And the people who were saying that we're, black was white and white was black, um, it, it, it does give you a certain professional satisfaction. It would be, it would be, remiss to say that it didn't and and on the um on the subject of journalists loving the smell of their own farts um mick you've obviously been doing this for for a long time and you know i know we i was being somewhat facetious there but obviously this is a this is a, a career case if you like this is something that's dominated the majority of your recent working life i suppose i mean just give us a sense of it like uh, what were your what are your abiding memories how do you look at this period i mean are you looking say for example now at the at the the trial at the moment as as something of a kind of drawing down of the curtain i mean just give us a sense no i'm not kieran i'll be honest um we don't know what will happen in the future but i don't think it it's the end of the hutch crime gang and i don't think and it's definitely not the the end of the the Kinnan cartel daniel Kinnan, obviously he's in the middle east somewhere it could be dubai it could be qatar could be somewhere else but no this is just I'll put it this way I think this is just another chapter what was it like in the feud it's really hard to explain but it was unlike anything and I mean I've I covered the troubles like the end of the troubles I covered various you know very big things say like the Oma bomb I was at the center of that because of communications I received and stuff so you know that was really really hectic but that was for two days this the intensity of this feud really it was the at its most intense Say probably from September 2015 until uh, 2018, maybe July 2018, when it was just at the forefront. So that's almost three years. And it was every day. It was like doing a marathon every day. And there were there were very, very long days. I, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I, I did have security threats at one stage, but it didn't come from the Kenan gang. I've never... Um, personally felt at risk from the Kinnan cartel. I always thought, and I know that there were issues with other journalists, I'm only talking about myself, I always sort of felt that I never had any fears that the Kinnans would go after me or, or cause me any difficulties. I always, there were ways that we had with communicating with people on, and I never felt at risk, right? And I never, it never entered my head once that the Kinnans would go after me or, you know, do anything. I did have a security issue. But it was with someone and I had to, you know, get uh, uh, the involvement of Gardaí, shall we say. Um, and that was very, it's, it's, it's a very lonely place. Three o'clock in the morning, you hear the slightest noise outside your house, even though there's, you know, guard attention at your house and you're getting all this stuff. It's you. You're basically alone. And that came from someone who would have been aligned to the Hutch gang. Now, it wasn't the Hutch gang themselves going after me, but it was someone connect very Sent, connected to them who took an issue with something I'd written and uh, issued threats now he was a very volatile person and it was for about four months it was extremely nerve-wracking and I had to watch where I went but you know the issue has now gone away but look most journalists get grief but uh, you know that that aspect of the the threat the, the threat and that the hassle I got from that one man it was extremely nerve-wracking and it felt extremely lonely but look journalistically it was an extremely challenging time. There were good aspects to it because you had you could you developed plenty of new sources because there was so much information coming in and so many people wanted to get their speak in that you did develop 
I made some fantastic sources. Thankfully, I still have them to this day. Now, I lost some sources as well because, you know, it happens. But, you know, journalistically, it was very interesting. It was very demanding, but it was very challenging at the same time. Yeah, well, that's fascinating, Mick. Um, I think that's as good a place as any to draw down the curtain. Um, But is there anything that you wanted to cover that we maybe haven't gone into in any detail? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, Just for a couple of minutes, we know that in April this year, the... International law enforcement, the guards and, you know, the, the Americans and various other ones made their move and Daniel Kinahan, so he's over in the Middle East. <clears throat> so uh, that move against Daniel Kinahan really has come about. Not, you know, I consider it's come about because of the havoc he wrought in, in Dublin where he thought he was un, unreachable and he, he prosecuted this horrific war. So, you know, I, looking back, the Kinahan's move and the Kinahan onslaught against it's their enemies. I think it's the biggest tactical mistake that any criminal has ever made because he brought a huge amount of heat on his gang and his money-making empire. So, you know, what I'm really interested in is what happens next. The Yanks are after him. And once the Americans have got you in your sights, it's not as if you can get away that easily. So the next year or two will be very, very interesting just to see what becomes of Daniel Kennan and to see if the... I personally think, and Drew Harris alluded to this, I think if he is going to be brought to justice, shall we say, it probably, it, my opinion, it's only an opinion, my, my belief is it probably won't be Ireland, it'll be in America. And it could be one of those supermax prisons like uh, El, El, El Chapo. So what happens next will be extremely interesting. It's been a very, the last eight years, the last, yeah, maybe almost 10 years, I suppose, have been really interesting. Let's see what the next few years bring. Yeah, I, I, it did spring to mind, actually, when I was reading about the Operation Desert Light, Europol bringing down the, the super cartel of cocaine dealers. And I did see that the UAE were one of the sort of intelligence sources. And it, it did occur to me that, you know, the net, you know, I, I know we are under the impression that he may have moved from the UAE, but it does certainly feel like it's becoming closer, uh, more of a closed net now. No, what this taught me is we're now in an era of, look, criminals don't respect borders, but I think we're now in an era of unprecedented international cooperation, where if you like, law enforcement doesn't respect the same borders, and in other words, they're all working together. So, you know, it's a new era of cooperation, and that puts pressure on people like Kinnan and all the others. Yeah, absolutely. Well, long may it continue. Mick, thanks a million for your time once again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I'm sure hearing how close the few came to your front door will give people a sense that this job is not exactly a walk in the park at times. That's it from us today. We'll be back with you when proceedings at the Special Criminal Court resume at the murder trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. If you've enjoyed today's episode and would like to hear more of Mick and Paul's experiences covering crime in Ireland, be sure to get in touch with us on Twitter. We're keen to give you more of what you want. In the meantime, thanks to Mick and we'll speak to you soon. Take care. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to subscribe to Shattered Lives wherever you get your podcasts. We also have an extensive back catalogue of interviews which you may enjoy. Shattered Lives is produced by Kieran Bradley for Reach Ireland.